economies are growing, the benefits are not distributed equally, and they're growing at the expense of just ripping through natural resources. Welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode we talk with somebody who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome Gina Lucarelli, who heads up the Accelerator Labs Network for the United Nations, which launched recently in 60 countries around the world, and which we talk about in this episode. I first met Gina... A few months ago, having collaborated with her and her team, together with Nesta, the Innovation Foundation, on developing a new collective intelligence design playbook, which launched last month, and has been generating a lot of interest since then. Gina is a native New Yorker and has lived and worked all around the world for the last 15 years, working with and wrangling colleagues at the United Nations to collaborate on sustainable development. She describes herself as an aspiring geek and a believer in the comeback of citizen participation. We had a really flowing conversation a few weeks ago, so I started out by asking her why her Twitter profile has an artistic image of a herd of sheep on it. Enjoy. So this is a this is a visual from a performance I saw in New York at the Park Avenue Armory. One of the scenes in this performance was about a hundred sheep walking on stage, and I think I, I loved the image because I always you know sheep have a kind of stereotype that follows them around, which is that they're followers. But what I saw in this herd of sheep was there is a leader, and they do follow the leader, but the leader changes, and it's really kind of emergent way of self organization, which I thought was fascinating. So I, I put it on Twitter. I love it. And these were actual live sheep that had been kept backstage somehow. Yes, I don't know. I don't know if they're like specific actor sheep, but I think they were just, yeah, it was like a hundred live sheep on stage. It was stunningly beautiful visually. I'm sure you know that video of the dancing guy in the field. The message being something like, it's the first follower that turns a lone nut into a leader. So it's Right, exactly. (laughs) So, So moving on to the other bit of your Twitter bio that caught my eye. So you said you're a big believer in systems and facts making a comeback. I think a lot of what we're seeing globally is a bit of imbalance, right? In the way few people are benefiting from economic growth and, and sometimes people get disaffected by public policy making processes and you know misinformation travels rampantly fast on Instagram and, and everywhere. So it's tough days for all of them, but I'm an optimist. So that's why I'm a believer they're making a comeback. I think collective intelligence is one of those visions or aspirations that kind of create the possibility for citizens and facts to make a comeback. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I'm also an optimist. I sometimes wonder where my optimism comes from because it's not always <laughs> borne out by the facts. I'm curious where your optimism comes from. How do you hold on to hope when the world is in many ways still a mess? Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's just stubbornness. But on the other hand, I think if you, it depends like how you're looking at things, right? If, if you look at the kind of global picture, things can get very depressing, right? But if you start to kind of zoom in on the extraordinary resilience of people, 
people and the amazing ideas and the way that like activism is changing and entrepreneurship is changing and what we think of as the role of government is changing. It's like that William Gibson quote, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. The reasons for optimism are here. They're just unevenly distributed. You know, once you surround yourself by people who are operating in this space and, and trying to do something in a very, very complex system, which is in many ways structurally set up for an unsustainable future, then you can kind of fuel your optimism and just, you know, and keep, keep rolling by seeing another new actor, another new lab, another new approach, another new field of work that comes up and you go, okay, all right, let's go with this. <laughs> Maybe that's the thing. Just off the top of your head, who or what has inspired you in the last, I don't know, let's say two weeks that, that has cropped up on your radar that has fueled your optimism and, and, and given you hope? Well, okay. I would be remiss if I didn't say uh, that the, you know, the Accelerator Lab Network is not part of that. And genuinely it is. So tell us a bit more about that because uh, people listening may not be familiar with yes. what that is. Okay. So for the past six, seven, eight months, we at UNDP, the UN Development Program, have been building a network of labs around the world. Half of them are in Africa. Almost half of them are in some of the poorest countries in the world that are really vulnerable to economic and environmental shock. So we've hired a hundred 180 people from these countries in these really kind of funky new roles. So we have heads of exploration, heads of experimentation, and heads of solutions mapping. And what's been extraordinary is when you set out and you're, you're thinking, okay, now we're going to be looking for a head of exploration in Benin or Niger or Nepal or Uzbekistan. You kind of frame what you want as that person. And then in the last couple months, we've held boot camps to onboard all our lab teams and meeting them and looking them in the eye is definitely a source of optimism. I think it's like a third of the people we've hired were living or working abroad uh, before they came back for this job. So these are highly educated people who, um, it's kind of reverse brain drain in a way. They're coming back to their country because this job sounded so interesting. This sounds amazing. Who are these people? Where do you find them? What, what were they doing previously, maybe before they joined you? The main thing was making it a campaign, right? And not just making it a traditional human resource process, right? Which was new for us. Even the framing of the titles was important. It sounded out of the box. It sounded different and it sounded authoritative, right? So I think that helped a lot. We had some really great graphics that were sent a lot around on um, Facebook and, and other social media platforms like, well, your parents won't know what you do, but they'll be proud of you, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> they were like, the other thing we did was a series of Ask Me Anything sessions, which are on YouTube. And in meeting the people that we eventually hired, a lot of them said, wow, I saw your YouTube session, the way you just described a day in the life of a head of experimentation is what made me apply. And we kind of went for this radical openness that I'm sure other organizations are doing. You know, at the UN, we tend to, it's very important for us to have fair and open recruitment processes um, so that it's, there, you know, we're not supporting any kind of nepotism or, or corruption in any way. So this openness and quirkiness and inviting people in to the kitchen to see how the meal was made, um, I think was really new and it, it caught a lot of attention. We had about, I don't know, over, over 8,000. I didn't ever get the final numbers, but somewhere in the middle, it was about 8,000 people who applied. Um, For how many roles? 180. 
Wow. What is unusual is just that so many people are being recruited into these roles at the same sort of time. I've definitely seen plenty of organizations hiring sort of similar-ish job titles, but but usually at very small scales, one or two or three at a time. With, with 180 people, I guess there's an opportunity that people can learn from each other and each other's experiences and sort of coach and mentor each other a little bit. Is that part of the plan as well? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think many people, when, when we told them about the plan to set up 60 labs at once, the normal reaction, and I had it myself for a while, was set up 20 and then set up 20 and then, you know, go from there kind of thing. And this was really, you know, the, the head of the UN development program, our administrator at King Steiner was very intent on this being kind of a systemic shock. You do it all at once. From zero to 60, literally, <laughs> is, is kind of how it went. One country sees what another country is doing, you know, in terms of campaigning and outreach and also, you know, targeting women candidates. One of the things I'm really, really proud of and happy about is that we do have um, gender balance in the lab teams, which is not Fantastic. easy in a lot of these places and Brilliant. in a lot of these roles. So, so all of that just starts to fuel each other. And the, it's a great kind of positive competition, right? Sounds amazing. And I'd, l- I'd love to ask you a bit more about that. But before I do, is it all right if we just kind of step back again for people that perhaps aren't familiar, as familiar with the work of the United Nations? And it never ceases to amaze me how often people haven't heard of the sustainable development goals. So I just wonder if we could just take a step back there and if you could just outline what the sustainable development goals are and how you think we are doing as a global species towards kind of addressing them and meeting. Sure. So, I mean, the way the UN has framed sustainable development in general for like the last 30 years or so has been about finding a better balance between economic growth on the one hand and then environmental protection on the other, and then in a third sphere, social inclusion. What we've seen from the 90s onwards is economies are growing, the benefits are not distributed equally, and they're growing at the expense of just ripping through natural resources. And so broadly, sustainable development is about rebalancing towards environmental protection and social inclusion while we continue to grow economies and create jobs. So that's kind of the bigger picture. The sustainable development goals were a promise of all the governments of the world um, in 2015 to achieve certain targets by 2030. There were a few things that were different about this promise because certainly in the United Nations, we often bring governments together and, and set goals and aspirations, right? But this one was different because uh, first it was preceded by a very large crowdsourcing effort, right? The biggest in our history. We asked about 10 million people what they need for their future. And these were kind of difficult and false choices between, you know, action on climate change and decent jobs. How do you ask 10 million people a question? How did that, how did <laughs> well, that work? Yeah, this was, um, so this was run by um, uh, a team within the UN called the Sustainable Development Goal um, Action Team. They had 16 priorities, and you would ask people to choose the six most important for themselves and their family. And the way they did that was they had a mobile uh, survey, but most of the feedback was received through in-person surveys, right? So that's the same question everyone. They engaged partners, they gave credit to the different partners who would go out and find this information. So basically they would engage partners with this common tool and then give them credit for going out and and getting, you know, 100,000 votes or what have you. So that's how that that ran. It was a survey called um, the My World Survey. And this Mm -hmm. was the framing was 
what's important for you and your family in the future. It was the first time that that kind of we the people moment um, was returned to the UN, right? Because our the, the charter set up after after the Second World War starts with we the people, and this was really kind of a return to this. Yes, we the people, not just the governments. Um, so that process fed into the decision makers who then decided, okay, how do we frame sustainable development in terms of tangible results that we can promise to work towards by a certain date and time? So there's 17 of them now, isn't, isn't that right? 17 sustainable development goals. How, how are we doing against that 2030 target? Are we going to meet them? Basically, the way it's set up is that every year, the governments of the world come and, and we do a review of how things are going, right? And this happens in July and then September at the General Assembly when all the heads of state come to New York for the UN General Assembly. So the basic tone as of now of 2019 is things are moving in the right direction, but not fast enough. That's the general tone. When it comes to things like climate change, obviously the ambition isn't even high enough. And, and that's mm -hmm. very clear from both the where we are on the sustainable development goal on climate change, but also on the Paris agreements. So that's where nations set their own targets and then we hold them accountable to achieving the targets that they set. But in general, sort of one of the sustainable development goals is to eliminate extreme poverty. That is people who live on a dollar and 90 cents a day by 2030, right? So that no one is, is living in that, that hand-to-mouth situation. Mm -hmm. So what we understand is it's something like 19 million people are going to be exiting extreme poverty this year, but that's not fast enough to eliminate it by 2030. This is part of the story of why we thought Accelerator Labs is, is critical. There are good things happening in development. You know, there are more girls in school and less women dying in childbirth and things are kind of inching in the right direction. So you mentioned briefly already collective intelligence, which I'd like to come back to, but the Accelerator Labs do a range of different things to address the sustainable development goals. Can you just give a flavor of the sorts of different things that they do? A big part of the design for the Accelerator Labs is this idea of tapping into bottom-up knowledge and expertise. So one of the things that the Accelerator Labs do is a deliberate effort to build on grassroots innovations, right? So here we're inspired by the work of the Honeybee Network, the work on lead user innovation that comes out of MIT um, and elsewhere, where you start to, you know, it's a real flip from the usual way of analyzing public problems, right? Where you start with the problem, you understand the problem, and then you develop a solution and you try it put that out into the world. This approach, which we call solutions mapping, is basically starting from the kinds of hacks and coping mechanisms and gadgets that people who are living in poverty and facing the effects of climate change on their farms and what have you, are actually putting in place to, to innovate kind of from, the, from where they are. So that's a big part of it, is, is starting in a way with the solution and the solutions that are happening everywhere. It's particularly closest to the problems that we're trying to solve. Um, so that's one chunk of things that we do with the solutions mapping in the Accelerator Lab. So practically speaking, that's looking for people who are, who've maybe you know, solved part of a particular problem, one of the goals in a new and interesting way on their farm or in their particular context, you know, that knowledge could be shared with others. Is that right? Exactly. So, you know, these are, you know, our colleagues um, at the Honeybee Network, Anil Gupta uh, and others, have mapped 
I think it's over a million grassroots innovations in India um, and, and elsewhere. These are things like refrigerators that are made of mud and don't take any electricity, you know, or motorcycle combination tractors that can actually uh, make tighter turns on smaller plots of land, right? It's, it's, it's a very kind of, sometimes they don't, people who are doing these things have just solved a problem they had, but they're not necessarily thinking this is a grand innovation that's going to solve global problems. Um, they're just doing it because they needed it. Our hypothesis is maybe that something about those kinds of innovations might be more likely to scale, given that it's invented by people who are closest to the problem. And I'm curious, what's the... Um the business model for rollout of some of these solutions that you anticipate. It's just to give you an example, I was involved a few years ago in an open innovation challenge uh, in Colombia in South America for a number of companies, one of which was called ASEB, which is a big white goods manufacturer. And the, the particular challenge we ran was called the $50 fridge. And the <laughs> thinking behind it was most fridges cost at least $200 to manufacture. And that means that they're only available to you know, a certain strata of society. And, and a lot of that is down to intellectual property that exists and, and is held by you know, a small number of manufacturers around the world. So if you can create a fridge for $50 that opens up, you know, refrigeration uh, to millions, if not billions of people around the world. And obviously it's a big commercial opportunity for somebody like Aseb, but also um, it, it solves huge health and well-being kind of criteria as well. And obviously longer term, if you can get it down to $40 and $30 and $20, ultimately you cast the net even wider. So mm -hmm. for sake of argument, how could a commercial player like Aseb, you know, participate in, in that? So the first thing we're trying to do is see these innovations, right? The, the first problem we're trying to solve is that we tend to be, we have a blind spot towards them. The presumption is so fixed towards external expertise, top-down reforms, service delivery kind of methods. The first, the first challenge is just find them, map them. So that's why we call it solutions mapping. But then I think we see kind of three avenues that, that things could grow and scale. I mean, first is that actually mapping these innovations, betting them, and kind of stretching them sometimes. Maybe they were designed to fix one problem, but with a little tweak, they can, you know, maybe the $50 fridge can also be, you know, reduce carbon emissions or something like that, right? So maybe there's a sort of- Yeah, kill two birds with one stone. Exactly, maybe there's a bit of stretching that can happen that can, that can improve it as a solution. But so we kind of see three avenues. So one is first to change the way development is done. And, and this, you know, it sounds abstract, I guess, at the beginning, but one of the stories that, that inspired this work was out of a farmer in Indonesia where people were looking at satellite cover on farming. And, and this is a place that floods all the time. And there's this kind of area that seems to be doing better. And they zoom in with field researchers and ethnographers and what have you. And they go in and they find out that the reason this bit of land is doing better is because there's a person there who knows everything about a specific kind of insect. And this insect eats the waste in the irrigation canals, which actually then prevents the flooding, right? So there's a person there who obsessed with these bugs and takes care of them and makes sure the ecosystem is working right and whatever. And actually it's helping um, his farms and the farms around his. So, so it was a huge inspiration to us because we knew that you could put 25 agricultural, economic development, you know, economists, others in a room to design a solution to recurrent flooding in Indonesia, and they would never come up with, you know, take care of these bugs. 
so, so for us, the first avenue of what to do when we find these innovations is to learn from them and to change the way we design development programs. So that's like the one that is most within our sphere of influence, right? The, the second avenue is, is there something we can hand over to government or are there parts of laws and regulatory frameworks that might need to be fixed to encourage that kind of bottom-up innovation. Again, India is a big source of inspiration on this. In their innovation policy, they specifically have a focus on these grassroots national innovations. So is there something about the policy environment that we can fix to encourage this more? Um, that's kind of the second avenue for how we would scale the solutions we see coming from the front line. And the third one, which is what you're talking about, which is the commercial one, this is the one, honestly, that for us is the biggest learning curve. So that's the one where you're exactly right. There are intellectual property issues at play. There's a question of how much, you know, what is our role as the United Nations in a country in terms of supporting that? How much can we directly be supportive of that for people? Or how much should we be focusing on creating this enabling environment that fosters that kind of bottom-up innovation? So I think... The commercial avenue is one that we have a big learning curve on. Yeah, no, well, that's particularly fascinating to me. Um, and, and it's the reason why I've called my latest venture liminal, which just kind of means the, the in-between spaces, because I think there's those you know, interesting opportunities or challenges that sit between places and organizations, sometimes large and small, sometimes public and private, uh, sometimes for-profit, sometimes not-for-profit. That's kind of... It gets messy, it gets complicated, but it also gets very, very interesting if you can help to navigate mm. that. So, yeah, I'm Space fascinated Space in between. By that. Absolutely. So tell me a bit more about collective intelligence. It's a term that I've been aware of for many years, but only recently through working with you and the Nesta team on this playbook that we launched a few weeks ago together, have, have really sort of dived deeply into it. What does it, what does it mean to you? And what, what's the, the example or the examples that you would give to really kind of bring, bring to life what it actually is? I mean, I, I love the, the Nesta definition of uh, collective intelligence, which is something like, you know, people working together, sometimes with machines, to solve problems. To me, collective intelligence is kind of combining, of course, the, you know, like the growing field of crowdsourcing and what we've learned from Wikipedia and, and other platforms like that, where distributed knowledge can actually be coordinated in a peer-to-peer -peer way. So, so that's a big source of it. And then you have this, it's kind of also bringing together the data innovation track. So tapping into, you know, we know that more and more data is being produced in the last two years than in all of history, but what do you do with that digital exhaust, right? What can we, what can we learn from it to solve public problems? And then my sort of running joke is also that like collective intelligence is just, you know, participatory decision-making or participatory governance on steroids that somehow in this world where even if N not even close to everyone has smartphones. More people do have mobile phones than, than indoor toilets, right? So, so something there has opened up, which allows a kind of participatory decision-making that is just a way beyond, um, you know, in-person sessions, sitting with communities and, and having participatory planning sessions. So that's kind of like how I see collective intelligence. 
I'm kind of fascinated by the United Nations without really knowing too much about how it operates um, just day to day. I'm just kind of curious how collectively intelligent is the United Nations? Uh, and surely having been around for as long as it has with, with as many different kind of members as it has, it, it's almost certainly kind of developed methods for, you know, building consensus and, you know, harnessing collective intelligence in its own way, perhaps perhaps a less technologically data-driven way. But, um, but yeah, just kind of curious how collectively intelligent would you say the United Nations is as, a, as an organization and as a network? Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to, it depends on what kind of intelligence or what function, you know, of the brain we're talking about, right? I guess certainly when it comes to kind of analysis or observation, Right. I think that's an area where different parts of the UN, you know, are getting better. Right. We, we have kind of early, you know, nascent early warning systems. We, we, we do a lot of situation analysis. Uh, we, you know, that there, we do emergency response, um, you know, within 48 hours of a, of a natural disaster um, in many parts of the world, you know, across UNICEF um, and, and other parts of the UN. So, so in terms of like observation as a function of intelligence, I think we're pretty good. Um, and then even in terms of like decision-making, we're also pretty good. We do have deliberative mechanisms, right? We are, we represent the small nations along with the big ones. Um, there's a sense of equality there. And of course, with our bigger, you know, our biggest objective, I th- who was it? I think it was Dag Hammarskjöld who said, you know, look, the, the job of the United Nations is not to take humanity to heaven, but to save it from hell. Um, and, so in, <laughs> and so in that sense, you know, yes, there is some collective intelligence right there. I mean, uh, the nature of conflicts has changed since World War II, where it's not nations fighting each other as much as it is internal conflict and, and, and other kinds of violence. But, but in that sense, yes, there hasn't been a, there hasn't been a World War III. Um, so, so, so those are kind of the upside. I think where we are collectively not as intelligent as we could be is the memory function, right? So mm-hmm. there's a lot, we know this and bi- lots of big organizations know this and there's a lot of reinventing the wheel. There's a lot of, um, there could be much more kind of speaking a common language in order to advance the state of the art together, uh, rather than creating silos and things like that. So that's something that we've been really working on improving. So I don't know yeah. how I would grade the intelligence. <laughs> Let's go for B plus. <laughs> B plus, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'd be happy with a B plus. In the previous um, podcast, I interviewed a woman called Cassie Robinson. I don't know if you know her. She's she fantastic. Yes, um, I'm a big fan. She described collective intelligence in a really nice way, which I, something along the lines of humans and machines sort of co-evolving together in harmony mm. or, or something like that. And I, I particularly mm. like that because it sort of implies a sort of dynamic and changing relationship over time. Obviously, as kind of machines get, you know, their processing power goes up and they're able to, you know, we're able to automate more and more things, you know, humans role, you know, changes as that evolves. And so there's something around that, which I thought was quite interesting. And just thinking about sustainable development goals and the challenge that you know the hugely ambitious challenge i know you said earlier we're not ambitious enough but it's still pretty ambitious how static are these as goals um that were set in 2015 and how sort of dynamic are they evolving over time and so on the one hand the sustainable development goals are a public promise right and that's it's very powerful and it's very important right and 
Who gets what? fired if they don't get met? Sorry, uh, sorry to be so direct. But... <laughs> the leaders of the nations, you know, that people, the, the challenge here is that people need to know about them. The problem with sustainable development is it's highly complex, right? And it's this, we have all these cognitive biases against thinking about the future um, or living our lives in a way that, that wouldn't undermine future generations' ability to live their own lives. The fact of making a public promise to do something about it is really, really important, right? And so that's the stasis part of the story, right? Yeah. I say I'm going to do this. If I don't do this, you get you fire me, right? That's 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 the principle of accountability that's lacking in many in many ways. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. On the other hand, Cassie's exactly right, and things evolve and change and you know sometimes just sticking to your promise isn't enough before the sustainable development goals were agreed to when it was the crowdsourcing phase um, i was working in eastern europe and central asia and i was working with a team in georgia that went out and asked the people of tbilisi what would make their city safe right and the expectation was that people were going to come back with crime, you know, thinking that crime is a problem and, um, and that they need more policing or more prevention or things like that. And one of the big things that came back is that people were uh, really afraid of these bands of uh, these gangs of stray dogs. Um, hmm. You know, that, that, that was what was really making them feel unsafe in their city. And I'm a dog lover myself, so it's hard for me to imagine. But, you know, sometimes when dogs are in, you know, when they're in a gang, they can be pretty scary, right? <laughs> if you're walking down a lonely street. So, course, yeah. so then the UN there was sort of in this position where they were like, well, wait, we have, you know, we have a budget line on gender-based violence and we have a budget line on, you know, public safety and social cohesion. We don't have a budget line on, on culling stray dogs or, you know, or, you know, how do we take our, our organizational structures, which, have a sense of public accountability because it was money promised to do something and then react to this evolving change that we're seeing that what's really bothering people is is the stray dogs so hmm. so i th i think you're you're right that there's a there's a funny there's something at play there right where i think and i that's what i love about the the nesta playbook that's out on collective intelligence is that they are pushing towards new forms of accountability with collective intelligence. I think that's really important. But there's something that we haven't solved there, which is how do you keep your promise while also following how things unfold? I think that sometimes keeping your promise isn't enough is, is uh, yeah, there's, that's very, very powerful. And I mean, just around climate, for instance, you know, largely or in part at least triggered by the UN's um, report was it last year, sort of citing mm -hmm. 12 years to go, which definitely captured the imagination. And with Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion and other things happening, it really feels like uh, it's kind of rising up the agenda in a way that I can't recall in my lifetime. So, yeah, mm -hmm. just kind of fascinated by how, how, how you know where to focus, if, if anything, just on a practical level, you know, whether you work on stray dogs or, or affordable fridges, you know, uh, with all these 17 goals and, and all these different methods, collective intelligence being just one of them, how do you, how do you know where to start and what, what to do and possibly more importantly, what not to focus on? What's your, what's your prioritization method? Yeah. So, I mean, the one thing about the sustainable development goals is we always say, look, this is a package deal. You know, you can't work on economic growth, but not equality. The thing that we're trying to figure out with the accelerator labs is 
Exactly that. So if it's a complex problem, right, with, I mean, sustainable development is, is dependent on kind of billions of actions and choices and decisions that we're making that we don't even know we're making. You know, if you're dealing with a complex problem like that, you, Bas uh, Lurz, our lead learning designer um, at the Accelerator Labs, has a great saying where he says, look, you've got to fight complexity with complexity. So within the Accelerator Labs, one of the many crazy ambitious things we're trying to do is actually take on a portfolio approach that moves away from the idea that, you know, the labs are going to find the one unicorn panacea solution yeah. for this complex economic environment, social problem that, that is extremely distributed among, you know, 8 billion people doing as many billion things in one day. So we're not looking for the one unicorn, which means then we take our cue kind of from uh, David Snowden, who says, look, you need um, in a complex system, you need to be operating on many, on many planes. You need multiple experiments where your portfolio is fairly balanced. You know, the, the heads of experimentation in our, in our labs around the world are meant to design portfolios of experiments that cut across regulatory, behavioral, technological fields, and many others, finance, tapping into collective intelligence, et cetera, and kind of throw a lot of things at the problem rather than just, you know, doubling down and saying, okay, this is, a, this is an economic problem or this is a governance problem. So uh, having a plurality of approaches is definitely important. Uh, you know, how do you how do you make the decision when to stop doing stuff if you feel it's not working? Have you have you figured some of that stuff out yet? I appreciate the accelerator labs are still a relatively new phenomenon. I don't think we've figured that out yet. I think it's even more complicated because if we say we're not looking for unicorns or silver bullets. But we also say we want to scale things. What are we scaling? <laughs> right? So if you're taking a portfolio approach, I guess you're scaling the combination of things that you've tested that appear to be working together. So I, yeah, so I think the portfolio approach and kind of scaling or going to the next level gets gets really tricky. And uh, and I don't think we figured out, you know, so I think we're trying to move away from this best practice thinking where it's like they took this approach to reducing poverty in schools in this country at this time with these conditions. And now we're going to export it everywhere, copy paste in the world. Yeah. Um, right. So, so we're trying to say, okay, they took that approach, but it was accompanied by, you know, um, some regulatory changes and, you know, the fact that it was before an election or whatever, sort of a multiple giant combination of approaches and contextual factors that then you go, okay, and that's what can scale. I like that. Um, I think you referred to Baz, Baz commented on fighting complexity with complexity. I don't know if you've seen in the kind of startup world where everyone's been obsessed with finding unicorns, billion dollar kind of startups, uh, there's a kind of backlash to that. Um, yeah. Uh, to, to supporting zebras rather than unicorns, which are um, <laughs> sort of more modest kind of growth aspirations, but uh, and that's pretty fascinating. Another another animal reference, but I, again, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Is something called the cobra effect. Have you heard of that? No. Um, What's that's that? kind of the law of unintended consequences. So it comes from the days of the British Empire in India, where uh, they didn't have a problem with dogs; they had a problem with snakes. And, <laughs> and the the ruling kind of British uh, authorities put a bounty on the head of dead snakes that were delivered to 
wherever they had to be delivered. Uh, but what they inadvertently created was uh, a sort of a second uh, a market for for dead snakes. So people started breeding snakes uh, and killing them to, to, <laughs> to, to recover the the bounty. And so it's it, it seems to be. Um, a well-known effect of, you know, the intention was to reduce the number of snakes, but actually it had the exact opposite kind of of the intended consequence. So it was probably fighting complexity with too simple a solution, putting putting a price on the head of a dead snake. So um, yeah, it's how do weird. We that it? reminds how me of something I read recently about um, one of the effects of kind of climate change and scarcity of resources in Democratic Republic of Congo is that people have to go kind of further and further into the jungle uh, to find firewood and, and things. And yes. actually snake bites are becoming a giant phenomenon and, a, and an epidemic um, in the Democratic Republic of Congo sort of because of this. But it's totally random, <laughs> serendipitous random, response to your, your cobra effect. There was um, an amazing video produced by George Monbiot, the kind of climate campaigner here in the UK that you might know a few years ago, talking about the reintroduction of I think wolves into Yellowstone National Park, and there was only a you know twenty of them, or a small number, but it had a massive impact on the ecosystem of that park in exactly. just a few short years because it it sort of changed the whole putting a predator into that ecosystem just changed the whole dynamic and um, uh, the the butterfly effect sometimes of small interventions and sometimes having very positive consequences like the reintro reintroduction of wolves versus negative like putting a price on the head of dead cobras. Anyway, we digress and I'm conscious that <laughs> you need to go, I'm sure. Um, I've certainly really enjoyed this conversation. I could talk to you uh, all day and there's lots more I'd like to ask you. I guess my final question um, is how can we help or how can other people help what you're doing? It sounds amazing uh, and you've got 180 people, which is a lot, but uh, not going to tackle these global challenges on their own. So in what ways can, can people participate or support the work that you're doing? Absolutely. No, that's fantastic. It's really been a pleasure talking to you too, Roland. I, I'm really enjoying this. But yeah, in terms of, um, we definitely need help, right? There's, there's even an army of 180 uh, explorers and mappers and experimenters and around the world are not going to, uh, you know, get development back on track. So largely, we're really interested in co-learning with everyone out there, you know, on collective intelligence, on what it means to build on grassroots innovations and take your cue kind of in user-led design. We're really keen to learn from others on portfolio approaches and, and what it means to what a zebra looks like. Um, all of this, the learning angles are just, there are many, many opportunities there. Um, specifically, we're looking for mentors for the labs, you know, skills building opportunities and even kind of data, uh, both data and, and then the analysis of data. If, if anyone wants to help us with that, um, these are all things that, that we're super, um, into. And I think just to say that the network of accelerator labs that we've set up are extremely decentralized. So the best thing to do is, I mean, our job at the global level is to make sense of this and in many ways matchmake between people who want to get involved and the various labs around the world. Um, but, you know, if you have a particular connection to Zimbabwe or Mexico or Morocco or any of the places where we have labs, contact the teams there and, and build it up from there because um, we're, we're really open for partnering um, on all of this. Fantastic. Thank you. So I'll, I'll make sure we include a link to the labs in the show notes so people can uh, follow up on that. And um, it sounds extremely exciting. I'm sorry that we've run out of time, but thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed that. And, um, and 
good luck and look forward to seeing how the labs and, and the work that you're doing progresses over the next uh, few weeks and months and, and the years to come. Thank you so much and good luck to you guys at Liminal. Um, it was exciting stuff. I really appreciate it. Thank you to Gina. There was so much that I found fascinating and inspiring about what she said about accelerating sustainable development. From the UN's role not being about taking humanity to heaven, but from saving it from hell. To setting global goals, yet considering how you keep your promise whilst following how things unfold over time. And from fighting complexity with complexity, and operating on many planes with multiple experiments happening simultaneously. Just a quick plug for the Collective Intelligence Playbook that we talked about. It's free to download from the Nesta website right now, and it's been getting lots of interest, as we said. And it's all about helping you to tackle complex global social challenges by combining the best of human ingenuity with machine intelligence at scale. And all of the relevant links to this episode are included in the episode notes if you want to find out more. I hope you enjoyed listening to the seventh episode of On The Edge. And if so, before we go, please can I ask that you rate, comment and subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who you think might like it as well. And use the hashtag On The Edge. This will encourage us to keep on making new connections and find more interesting people to talk to and share those conversations with you. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community focused on tackling and addressing complex challenges of our increasingly connected world. Thank you for listening. Until next time, keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.